1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Today has arrived, my friends, uh, again, when I will give you my last sermon from this pulpit as your pastor. It's been a tremendous experience, and one that I'm very, very thankful for. And I'm thankful for you all that you allowed us to share our ministry with you. And I never thought the Lord would call me to be a pastor at age 45. I really thought at age 45 I was... I was actually thinking about uh, something I'm closer to now than I was then, which is retirement. I was thinking, uh, what am I going to be doing here in the last 25 years of my life? And uh, because I was uh, newly saved and uh, at age 40, uh, but the Lord kept working on my heart, working on my heart, working on my heart, and then eventually um, I knew that I was being called to the pastorate. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't remember, that was quite a shock to Cindy and I. Cindy than me, I think. But uh, that's a very difficult conversation. For those of you who've been married a while, you it goes something like this. Honey, the Lord's calling me to the pastorate. She's like, yes, I know. Well, that's going to involve, I know you haven't worked outside the home in 25 years, but you're probably going to have to go back to work because I need to go to school. And, oh, by the way, there'll be a 90% pay cut. So that went over pretty well. It really didn't. It took about a year for that to really kind of sink in, but uh, we kept getting confirming steps along the way. And then uh, eventually uh, we were called to be the pastor here in 2010, really about the same exact time, about 11 years ago. I'm thankful for the deep, deep we, uh, love that we have for each of you, and which is beyond our wildest comprehension. And it's only of the bond that we have in Jesus Christ, that we could love you so deeply and feel so loved. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, is love. Now, I know we talked about love a little earlier in my uh, departing series here in John chapter 13, verse 34, but I want to get a little more specific here today in 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to dig a little deeper into lo what love is supposed to look like in the church. So if you haven't found your way there yet, please find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is often called what? The love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. 
Now, most of us are pretty familiar with this particular passage because we've heard it numerous times uh, at weddings. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? We would expect to hear about love at a wedding. But are these verses talking about uh, love, specifically about love in a marital relationship? No, not really. They're not. Although they apply because a lot of that same agape love is what you need uh, in uh, marriage. These verses are talking about love, and they're a natural springboard for the kind of love that's necessary in marriage, but what Paul is talking about, the context here, and we always say the context is everything. The context here is not really marriage. So I want to take a little deeper dive again into this passage. Let's see how that helps us understand today. But before we do, let's go to the Lord of Prayer. Ask him to bless our time together in his prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for just this tremendous opportunity I have. What a privilege it is to open up your truth, to speak your truth to these dear saints. I thank you for all those who are digging out early this morning just to, just to get here. And I pray for those, Lord, who are still digging out. Watch over them and keep them safe as they're preparing their way here. And Father, uh, be with us now in the inner midst. Our hearts have uh, mixed emotions here today. We're joyful of our time together in fellowship, and yet we have some sadness in our heart as well as we say goodbye. So be with us, Lord. Comfort us as only you can do. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's uh, get a proper context here need to turn back one page here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I just want to have you look at a couple verses. Uh, and we're just, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to exegete those. I just want to give you an idea of the context here. Check, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. It's about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. The entire chapter. And Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians 12 is the unity in the body of Christ despite how various these gifts are. How diverse these gifts are. And so he wants to say, listen, you might have this gift, you might have this gift, but it's all for the building up of the body of Christ. It's all about unity. So instead of fighting and arguing about who has which gift and which gift is greater and which, we should be looking at the unity in the body of Christ. And so he really takes uh, chapter 12. Look at verse 7 here, specifically he says this, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good, right? For the whole body. Oftentimes, in, in many different uh, denominations, they think that spiritual gifts are for us. But really, they're not. The spiritual gifts that you have are not for you, my friends. They're for each other. Now, you, every person here has at least one spiritual gift. Some of you have many spiritual gifts. But they're not for you. They're for you to use in the body of Christ. That's why they're given to you. So verse 7, again, verse 11, you can look at that. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And then beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, we see this theme repeated. Look at verse uh, 12. For even as the body is one and yet is many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. You hear the theme here. Unity, unity, unity. For the body is not one member, but many. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. So you thought you were here by happenstance. But this verse tells us, or these verses tell us, that you're here for a reason. And the reason is the gifts that God has given you are needed in this body of Christ. And so you were brought here to exercise and use those, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the common good, for the benefit of the body of Christ. Then finally, look at the end of the chapter. They culminate in these verses, in verses 27 to 29. He says, now you are Christ's body individually, members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. And he says, verse 29, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, yet and yet, he says, are they? All have at least one spiritual gift, but the unity of the church supersedes any gift that you may have. And if we jump ahead and just skip over uh, chapter 13, look at chapter 14, verse 26. Look at the end, uh, near the very end of chapter 14. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has teaching, has a revelation, has tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? For edification, or for the building up of the body of Christ. So we have chapter 12 is all about these diverse spiritual gifts, not superseding the unity in the body of Christ, not superseding your relationships in the body of Christ. And then chapter 14 is all about diverse spiritual gifts and how they should not supersede unity in Christ or unity in the relationships in the body of Christ. So if chapter 12 is all about these unity in relationships in the church, and chapter 14 is all about unity in relationships in the church, what do you think chapter 13, the context of chapter 13 is about? Well, if you guess unity in the body of Christ and relationships in the church, you're right on track. Because that's exactly what it's about. And the key to achieving this kind of unity and God-honoring relationships in the church is love. And that's what he wants to talk about in chapter 13. He wants to talk about love. So 1 Corinthians 13, in context, is written to a church that's struggling with unity and relationships in the church. It's not that the church wasn't loving. It's rather that love had ceased to be the overarching mission of the body of Christ. Paul is saying that loving relationships are far more important than any individual gift that you may have in the church. And it's far more important than titles or positions in the church. It's far more important than ministries you're doing and which of those ministries are visible and which are not. Nothing, let me say that again, nothing that we do in the church is significant either now or eternally 
without love. Nothing. That was true from the church's inception in Acts chapter 2. It's still true today. Without love as the overarching mission for the church, we're gathering together, we're getting some things accomplished, but uh, none of it has any semblance of eternal significance without love for each other. Lots of organizations can gather together. Lots of organizations can get a lot accomplished. Much, much of it very good for the community, even for society in general. But only the church is motivated by love, empowered through the Holy Spirit, empowered through the love of Christ, reaching out in love and edifying the body of Christ in love. Only that has eternal significance. And we know that's true because that's what Christ demonstrated for us in his earthly mission, wasn't it? Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love, his own love toward us in what? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because of his love as his children, our sins have been forgiven. Where once we were in rebellion against God, we now, through Christ's atoning work on the cross, have been forgiven and adopted into his family. And as magnificent as Christ's love is demonstrated for us at the cross, we can also forget that his love for us stretches beyond the cross and should permeate every aspect of our lives. We like to talk about what a great manifestation it is or cry, I, you know, when we look at the cross, we see this great manifestation of God's love for us, and that is very true. But my friends, it doesn't stop there. That's actually the beginning. It's kind of like salvation, right? A lot of people think salvation is the end game. Salvation is actually the beginning of your journey called sanctification as God molds you and shapes you and conforms you and transforms you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. That's really your purpose in this life, is to glorify him. And you glorify him best when you're more like him and less like us. Everything that we do and everything that we are is rooted in Christ's love for us. Why? Because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love or dwells in love or remains in love remains in God. We are made in his image, and thus we are given emotions and intellect and a will so that we can bear that image in every aspect of our lives. Yes, we are to walk by faith. Yes, we are to live in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But the most important aspect of who we are in Christ and how that is to be lived out each day of our lives is grounded in love. Every single aspect of your being is to be grounded in love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. 
we may talk like Christians and look like Christians in our Jesus gear. We may know all the lingo. We can plaster all over the internet what a strong faith we have or what a wonderful church we belong to. But if we do not do everything in love, we are just going through the motions, my friends. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 again that Pastor Ben read for you earlier. Look what Paul says. He says, if we speak with tongues of of men and of angels, but we do not have love, we have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Basically, I'm making a lot of noise, but there's no significance here without love. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy or teaching and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, what does Paul say? I am nothing without love. I can quote Bible verses left and right. I can read the Bible backwards and forwards every year. I can, I can, I can put all the trappings on of what it means to be a Christian, but if I don't have love in my heart for Christ and I don't have love in my heart for my fellow believers, Paul is saying, I am nothing. And we skip over these verses, beloved, as if they're not really that. Oh, yeah, yeah, love, yeah, yeah. But he's talking about something much deeper here. How does God say we are to love? Well, verses 4 to 8 help us understand what love is and what it's supposed to look like in our daily life. Love is not primarily a feeling. It's an action. It's a, it's a choice. It's agape love. It's a, it's a love of the will. I choose to love you, even when you're being unlovable. Agape is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love. It's a love that's lavished upon us without a thought of whether we are worthy to receive it or not. That's the word that's used in 1 Corinthians 13, agape, love. It's not enough just to acknowledge that love is essential we're actually called to exhibit this agape love in every aspect of our lives. So let's look here in uh, beginning in verse 4. He starts off with a couple things. He says, this is what love is. That's our point, number one. This love is these things. Then he's going to move to, this is what love is not. And then he's going to finish with, this is why. that it means that we're willing to be taken advantage of or even inconvenienced by another person without getting upset. Wow. The idea behind this word is that we are to love in such a way that we are patiently waiting for God to move in our lives and the lives of the person we're interacting with to accomplish God's will. That means when something's going on and I have a conflict with my brother or sister in Christ, 
my first thought is, I need to let God do what God does in their heart. And I need to do, I need to wait and let God do what God does in my heart. And when God is finished in my heart and their heart, this is going to seem like a small deal. See, the it means that we focus on the greater mission of expressing love to one another, even when it can be very difficult. Even when you've been hurt by one another, either intentionally or unintentionally. It is responding in grace and love as God completes his work in your heart and in their heart. This patience, when expressed in love, focuses on what's right instead of who's right. Love is kind. That's the second one. You see that there? This is demonstrated by your desire and actions to help others when they're in need. It's putting others' needs ahead of your own. I like this definition. Kindness is what uh, patient love looks like in practice. Kindness is what patient love looks like in practice. When I'm patiently waiting for God to move in my heart, I'm patiently waiting for God to move in their heart, and I respond with kindness. choose to respond in love and kindness regardless of the circumstance. Now that's not always easy to do, is it? It can be difficult to love patiently, waiting for God to grow our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not always easy to respond with grace and love when you've been wounded by your brothers and sisters in Christ. But that is why, that is what we're called to do. Why? Because that is what Christ did. And that is our mission in the church, is to love him and love our neighbors in like manner. And your neighbors, my friends, are not just the people that were shoveling this morning beside you. Your neighbors are all around you right now in the church. And when we forget that, we can call ourselves a church, but we're not demonstrating what we're certainly not making disciples or bringing a powerful testimony to the lost either when we forget love. Agape love is patient and it is kind. Okay, now we know what love is. Let's look at what love is not. Love is not jealous. Oftentimes this is demonstrated in one of two ways. Either I'm jealous that somebody has something and I believe I should have it, or someone has something that I don't believe they should have. Jealousy can look like either one of those. For example, I wish I was singing in the praise team, or I wish I was a deacon or a deaconess. The flip side of that would be, I resent so-and-so is on the praise team, or I resent so-and-so is a deacon or a deaconess. And I desire that something would happen so that they weren't in that position anymore. Now, the first example is more selfish. The second one, that one's evil. Wishing harm upon somebody else because you don't want them to have that position. Wishing for something bad to happen to someone just to justify your resentment, I would call on you to repent. Love does not brag. Agape love does not brag. 
about something I have or something I've done, but rejoices in what God is doing in both of our lives. Whereas jealousy is all about wanting what others have, bragging is all about wanting other people to be jealous of what I have. Unless we forget, every good and perfect gift is from above, my friends. Everything that you have is from God. We literally have nothing without the Lord's gracious provision to us, and that includes our jobs and our titles and our spouses and our families and our material goods and our bank accounts. I could go on and on. Everything that you have is from the Lord everything. True love manifested in the church recognizes that God is the source of every single provision we have and it rejoices in that truth together. Love is not arrogant. Arrogance has no place in a believer's life because everything we have is by God's grace. If you think you're always right, you need to have the last word. You're not living out if you're willing to push your side of an argument to the point that others are hurt just to be right, you're struggling with arrogance. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not needlessly and carelessly offend others. You know, cruel words are like bullets, aren't they? See, once you fire them, you can't ever get them back. And when you deliver them at close range, they always hit their target. They always inflict damage and they always leave a scar. So be careful. Someone defined this love does not act unbecomingly as the need to hurt others so that we can be exalted. Oftentimes in the church, this is done under the guise of Christian love and care. But if your actions are inflicting pain on others, it's time to reevaluate whether you're acting in love in kindness See, agape love always seeks the benefits of others over their own desires. And it goes to great measures, great effort to ensure that happens, often at great personal cost and sacrifice. Agape love takes the pain and the scorn and the derision to spare others from the sin. Love did not seek its own good or its own interest. You might just have love does not seek its own in your translation. This is the complete opposite of what agape love is all about, isn't it? You see, in relationships, the source of our conflict is simply driven by our intense desire to have things our own way. You know, Marvin once told me, he said that he and Janet only had two things they ever fought about. She wanted her way and he wanted his. And I thought that was pretty wise. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to look at something here. I think we referenced this this morning also. About contentment. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than whom? Yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Now, I can't tell you how countercultural that is today. 
because in the world we live in today, it reinforces this message that it's all about you. It's all about your personal happiness. It's all about what you think is right. You become the standard now of truth and your happiness and your feelings. But agape love is in stark contrast to this message. Agape love says, how can I build you up? Selfish love says, how can I build me up? Agape love is secure in who we are in Jesus Christ. Search your hearts, my friends. Be careful. This is one that can trip a lot of us up. God knows what's in your heart, and so do you. And if this is an area of concern, Love is not provoked. This carries it with the carries with it the idea that you're not easily angered. That doesn't mean that you're not going to see things differently from time to time, but it does mean that we check our anger to see if it's righteous anger or sinful anger. And can I just clue you in a little bit? Because I've been pastoring a long time and doing a lot of counseling. It's rarely, rarely ever righteous anger. It's almost always. We try to convince ourselves most of the time that it is indeed righteous anger, but my friends, it rarely is. No matter how many coats of religious varnish we put over it, it usually has a selfish root in there. So be careful. Agape love does not get angry every time someone does or someone says something that we don't like. Agape love does not get angry just because we didn't get our way or we didn't get the outcome we desired. Agape love avoids the provocation to anger and responds with love and grace. That's what it looks like. That's what Paul's talking about here in the church and our relationships with each other. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Instead of being bitter for everything that's ever been done to you, you wipe out those wrongs by forgiving and refusing to hold your brothers and sisters hostage to what they've done in the past. This goes with marriages too, my friends. We are called to forgive others. How? How are we to forgive each other? Just as Christ has forgiven you. How has Christ forgiven you? As far as the east is from the west. That's the standard of forgiveness. Beloved, you can't swim in the waters of forgiveness for yourself and hang on to the anchor of grudges and bitterness. You'll drown in a sea of bitterness and anger. It's amazing how often we can demand that others forgive us when we sin against them, and yet we can be so unforgiving when others sin against us, or when we sin against them. given so much and then somebody owed them in comparison to what they had been forgiven. Do you remember that? We looked in depth at that when we studied forgiveness in Philemon. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. When we hear bad things about each other, do we immediately accept it as truth or do we run it against the grid of their life? Sometimes we're quick to believe such things far too quickly. It's like a juicy tidbit of information that we're just kind of going to keep going back and chewing on chewing on it, chewing on it. But that's gossip, my friends. That's something that we're repeatedly warned against. 
referenced in Scripture. And it's tempting to believe these things and to run with that gossip, but that almost always leads to us assigning motives to people. Something the Bible calls slander takes a very hard stance on in Scripture. Be careful there as well. How should we respond? We should respond with love and grace and remember there, but by the grace of God, go I. I might not have made that particular sin or that particular mistake, but here, look at the truckload of ones that I do and I have made. That should be our attitude. All right, we've looked at what love is and what love is not. Now we turn our attention to why love never fails. And he gives us some insight here. And the first one he says is, love rejoices in the truth. And that word truth here is the complete opposite of the unrighteousness we just discussed. In the same way that we refuse to embrace any unrighteousness, either in our own lives or through the gossip of it in our brothers' and sisters' lives, here we're called to embrace the truth of God's word in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. So instead of reacting to untruths, we embrace what we do know in truth about each other. Love bears all things. What does that mean? That means love always means instead of constantly looking for any chink in the armor of our brothers and sisters, we come to, we seek to come alongside them and help them bear their burdens, whatever they may be. And when I'm quick to notice and point out each other's faults, I'm not practicing love, my friends. We need to be very careful. It's always better to lead in love and grace than to be looking for the speck in each other's eyes. Because oftentimes, as Jesus tells us, by where looking for the speck in each other's eyes. We miss the beam, the two-by-four coming out of our own. Love believes all things. Not only does it always protect, it always trusts. And the idea here is, is that we don't lose faith in each other, even if someone's made a mistake or hurt us somehow. It's so easy to point out the flaws in each other's lives. We're really kind of expert at that. It takes no special dispensation to find fault with each other. But agape love resists that temptation to think the worst of each other and assign motives to them. Instead, we should delight in giving second chances and third chances, or as Jesus told Peter, seven times 70 chances. Again and again and again and again, because we love them and we want to see them grow in their walk and we want to rejoice with them in how God is working in and through their lives. How would any marriage survive if we quit trusting each other every time one of us made a mistake? How would your children ever know you truly love them if you refuse to trust them the rest of their life because they made a mistake? People may stumble, my friends, but agape love never gives up on them. And perhaps the bigger mistake is not responding in love and grace when others fall, forgetting that we ourselves have been so much. Love hopes all things, or always hopes. No matter how dismal things are or how hopeless things look, love maintains an attitude of hope that they are going to get better. It's a refusal to take setbacks as the final outcome. And one way to demonstrate this is to say to your brothers and sisters in Christ, 
I know that God is working in and through this, and because he is, we're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. Love is ever hopeful because of who we are in Christ, and love always sees the good in people and hopes in the good that can continue to be in Christ. Love never fails. Love always love never fails. Feelings may fail. Emotions may fail. Even relationships when we forget love may fail. But agape love never fails. It never fails. Because it's rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, his love for us, and our love for each other. Love, this is my desire for you as I leave as your pastor and you prayer the PBC will not just be a church that teaches God's word, although that's very important. And I pray that we're not just a church that has solid doctrine. That's very important as well. But I pray the PBC is a church known for its love. This kind of love. Agape love. Because if this church or any church puts more emphasis on anything but love, it will inevitably fall away. I pray that this church will continue to grow in the knowledge and grace and love found in Christ Jesus. And that prayer will be manifested through you. You are the ones who can start today. look around and hope that others will do it. Be the first to embrace what it means to love one another in the church. Review this list. Keep it handy. Post it. Put it in your Bible. Put it somewhere to remind you every day. Those are the things we do for love. Because of Christ. Because of what he's done for you. Because of who you are now in Christ Jesus. Love each other, my friends, like Christ. There are plenty of noisy gongs out there, but very few who love like Christ. And I pray that I have done that for you these past 20 years. I've loved you like that. And that's my closing instruction for you all. Love each other like Christ loves you. That's what I want you to remember. Most of all, of everything that I've ever said, remember that. Because nothing that we do in this church is significant, either now or eternally, without love. Well, let's pray, shall we, before we cry. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord,
part of this body. May Portage Bible Church be known for its love. Lord, that's my heart's desire because I know that's your heart's desire. So help us to do that, Lord. Empower each one here through the ministry of your Holy Spirit.